everyone. I am Eve Harrow, Director of Tourism and Community Development for Winners Rail Fund. And I'm delighted to be talking today with Hillel Fool, who is, what does Forbes call you? Men transforming startup nations to scale up nations. It's a little bit embarrassing, but. Okay, but maybe describe for us what does that mean? What it means is that I think by now everyone is aware of the fact that Israel is a technology superpower. Um, traditionally, back in the day, Israel was very strong at cyber because of the military, right? Today, Israel pretty much dominates every sector of technology, and we are well known as startup nation, but if you think about it, what's startup nation? Startup nation means that people are building startups, and it doesn't mature to become a big company because they sell too early. And that was the case, traditionally. Today, you know, just looking at the IPOs, the public offerings, the companies that went public for the NASDAQ and the New York Stock Exchange, this year, for the first time ever, and this is a, this is a massive deal, for the first time ever, Israeli companies went public, the number of Israeli companies that went public surpassed the number of exits, which means we are no longer startup nation. Now we are, you know, Forbes called it scale-up nation. I call it unicorn nation because unicorns are companies that are worth a billion dollars. It's just a phrase in tech. So it's really exciting because we're now graduating out of this small little ecosystem that builds cute startups and sells them for $50 million, $100 million to companies that are worth many, many, many billions. All the Israeli companies on Wall Street together are worth, want to take a guess? I haven't a clue. Take a guess. How much are all the Israeli companies on Wall Street worth together? I don't know, $50 billion? $300. $300 billion? $300 billion. Wow. So, I mean, the numbers speak for themselves. You know, one of the statistics that people talked about a lot over the last couple of, let's say, 10 years was that Israel has more entrepreneurs per capita than any country in the world, which is great. But let's leave, leave aside per capita because that's subjective. Objectively, absolute numbers. You look at NASDAQ, you look at the New York Stock Exchange, the country with the most companies on the public markets is the United States of America. 350 million people. The second one is China, 1.5 billion people. Number three? Israel with 9 million. Israel with 9 million, which wow. is objectively outrageous. It's just outrageous. And so really it's never been this exciting in Israel and uh, I'm beyond blessed and fortunate to be meeting these remarkable, brilliant people who are building the future, who are trying to change the world for the better. And um, you know, for me, it's just like, how did this even happen? How am I so lucky? But you know, I feel very fortunate. So the way I look at this is that there are no coincidences, especially when it comes to the Jewish people. So coincidentally, maybe what drove all this was the Russian Aliyah. We got a million when the Soviet Union fell apart, right? The end of the 80s, beginning of the 90s. We got a million highly educated people that a lot of people say were kind of the push behind this, in addition to the army and the intelligence units and a lot of the people coming out, in addition to just the minds that we have here. And what amazes me is that here we are back in our country after quite a long time without the sovereignty. A couple thousand years. A couple thousand years, really, without being able to, to do our own thing. And we are positioned to have exactly what the world needs right now. Not necessarily oil fields, not necessarily diamond mines, brains. People who think out of the box, who think creatively, who are entrepreneurs. And here we are. And because of that exile, maybe we think a little bit creatively because when you got thrown out of place after place, the only thing you took with you was what was between your ears. Right. Okay. And we always want to be highly educated. Part of that is from learning our traditions and the Torah. And part of it is just because that's how you managed to get ahead with what you knew because you couldn't always have stuff. So here we are. So I see, I really personally see this as a God thing that he positioned us to still be allied into the nations or to continue to be allied to nations in so many ways. So now when you talk about high tech and we talk about it kind of like high tech, can you parse it out a little bit? I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? Is it medical? Is it Great computer? Question. What exactly is happening here? I just want to address the first thing you said that there are no coincidences. 
a story that happened to me an hour ago. I promise you, I'm not exaggerating. I was sitting in Biga in Serona, right? It's our cafe. And I met with an investor that reached out to me via LinkedIn or something. I didn't have any context. I didn't know what he wanted from me. But okay, he seemed like a nice guy. I met with him. We had a cup of coffee. And what does he say to me? He says to me, this is what I'm looking to invest in. He gave me his criteria. And then I look to my left and there's a woman who took my course. And I give a course on, entre on entrepreneurial, kind of all the challenges, etc. So I know her. And he says to me, I am looking for ABC. And literally, she marks all those boxes. And so I introduce them. And I mean, obviously it takes time to write a check, but it, it seems pretty optimistic. And I'm like, guys, there's a reason that you're sitting here and I'm sitting, like, with chances, you know? So I, I, I firmly do not believe in coincidences. That's first of all. Second of all, it's, it's a fascinating question what you asked because it's really hard to find any vertical or any sector of technology in which Israel is not a dominant player. And let me explain what I mean. I'm not saying that we're number one in the world. Right. Silicon Valley, you know, is number one in many different sectors. But in every sector of technology, with no exception that I can think of, Israel is a dominant player. So maybe we're number two in the world, maybe we're number three in the world. And even the sectors that we were weak at, we were very weak at consumer tech, meaning apps, right? Because we're nine million people here. How do you build a business on nine million people? So, right. so that was our weakest link. That's changed too. I mean, I'm, you've heard of, I'm sure, many of the consumer apps and consumer companies that are built here from Fiverr to Lemonade to Lightrix. I mean, you open up your app store anywhere in the world, look at the top paid apps on Apple, and two of them at least are developed here in Jerusalem, anywhere in the world. So, you know, there's, there's pretty much no space in which Israel is not dominating. Having said that, you asked a very good question because, you know, we'll talk a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit later about this, but um, I think the punchline, the thing that, for me at least, is the most impressive is what's called impact technology, meaning not nonprofits. I'm talking about profitable companies. I'm talking about for-profits, right? That are making the world a better place. So whether it's healthcare, whether it's cancer research, whether it's mental health, what, million of it, that to me is like, okay, it's great that Google's here. It's great that billions of dollars are flowing into Israel. All of this is great. But if we're not making the world a better place, if we're not a light onto the nations, then what are we doing here? And so the amount of companies in this country, I can tell you stories you would not believe. I'll just give you one story, if I may. I met with a guy a couple of years ago named Dr. Rick Klausner. Dr. Rick Klausner is the utmost authority on cancer research. He was the guy, he was the national cancer, the director of the National Cancer Institute. Every president of the United States came to him and said, here's a blank check, cure cancer. He left the National Cancer Institute and he joined an Israeli company as a chairman. And this is a video you can watch on YouTube. So I'm not, you know, you can watch it with your own eyes because I'll tell you why, you'll see why I'm saying that because it's shocking. I said to him, Dr. Klausner, we have self-flying drones, we have autonomous cars, we have robotics, we have artificial intelligence. Why can't we cure cancer? Right? I'm sure everyone asks themselves that question. Why have we not cracked cancer? And I'm sure he was going to say, because there's so many types of cancer and it's complicated. And he looked me in the eye and said, we have. I said, what? And remember, this is on, you can watch this. If you think I'm making this up, watch it on YouTube. I said, what do you mean we have? He said, leukemia and several other types of cancer are cured. I said, what do you mean? He said, we've learned after 100 years of research how to rein in a person's immune system to kill his own cancer. Now, and this is a very big disclaimer. And I'll tell you why it's a big disclaimer in a second. Some of these treatments and cures are not necessarily readily available. They're not commercial. They're not FDA approved yet, but in the labs, we have cured them. Why am I saying this? Because I once gave a lecture in a New York uh, school and I told this story and then someone in the, in the audience came over to me afterwards and said, listen, my son-in-law has leukemia. Can you cure him? Right. And I'm like, oh my God. Well, so I think give I that disclaimer. Into, so it's an yeah. important disclaimer. I'm not saying that people aren't dying of leukemia. They are, but we have medically, scientifically cured leukemia. When it will be available is a different story, but that's fascinating, but not as fascinating as what he told me next. I said to him, okay, so we've cured types of cancer. Where were these treatments and these cures developed? Hebrew U, 
IDC, Weizmann Institute, Bar Ilan, every single one of them in Israel. It blew my mind. And then about two or three months later, I had a meeting with a guy named P Peter Cash with a K. Uh, we we sat in Great Mr. Name. Yeah, we sat in Mr. Broadway in New York. He's also one of the top experts on uh, on cancer research. I actually spoke to him last night. Topic for another time, but amazing dude, amazing guy, just really just an amazing guy. And I sat with him, you know, just for lunch. We started to talk about cancer research, and he went down a list of about twenty to thirty different types of treatments that are deployed globally in hospitals around the world, all developed in Israel. Wow. I mean, I'll just give you one tiny little example, and I'm sure you know this because you come from the medical world. Cervical cancer, right? Cervical cancer is curable, 95% curable, but nobody gets tested. Why? Because the test is super intrusive, invasive, and it's not a comfortable test. So many, many women don't get tested, which is just crazy. You can be cured. So what did this guy named Ariel Be'eri do, an Israeli entrepreneur, originally American? He founded a company called Mobile ODT. And what is Mobile ODT? They developed a device, hardware, that works with your iPhone and that can detect cervical cancer without any physical contact. I couldn't explain to you the technology behind it. No need to touch the person. And it works. And they're deploying it globally Women, around the world. Generally. Women, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, no, like no contact at all. Wow. Using some special light. I couldn't explain it to you, but it's just one example among hundreds. So to me, everything that's going on here, and we can talk more about that if you want, but to me, the punchline, the thing that's just, it's just unbelievably inspiring is that Israel, this tiny little country, a speck on the map in the worst neighborhood on earth, is yeah. literally, and you know, people use the words changing the world as like a figure. Literally, we're changing the world. Not to be, this is not an exaggeration. Across all the healthcare world, we can go into that if you want. Across every, AI, we're leading the way. VR, virtual reality, we're leading the way. Blockchain, which is a new thing, leading the way. Everything. And again, you gotta put it in the context of, here we are, this tiny little country. And, and I would just address one more thing that you said. I agree with you that, you know, our history, takes a big part in the role in how successful we are, as does the military. As, but I, you know, I like to joke, although it's not a joke, um, you know, in most places in the world, if you're driving on the highway and you put on your blinker to leave, to go yeah. to the next lane, generally speaking, maybe with New York, New York City aside, the driver slows down to let you in. Israel aside also. In Israel, what do we do? Hmm. What speed do we do? up. We speed up. Now, why is that? So we can make a joke about it, but why is that? What's the sociological, psychological, you know, explanation of that. And I think maybe I'm being, maybe I'm overthinking here, but I truly, really believe this, that, you know, the Jewish people throughout our history, we couldn't let people into our lane. We had to survive. Interesting. We're, we had to survive. We, we had to use all our resources to survive. We were in constant survival mode for thousands of years. And here we are at home. We have this quote unquote excess of energy and resources. So what are we going to do? We're going to change the world, but we're not letting anyone to our lane because you know what? Last time we let someone to our lane, they massacred us. I, I really believe that's, that's an like interesting a national trauma. You know, like, it, it, by the way, it manifests oh, yeah. in we're, many, many different ways in the army also. But we're it, PTSD people. 100%, I think. You know, I'll tell you, when, when I hear, when my mom hears glass breaking, she, she, she goes into shock because my grandmother was in Kristallnacht. Wow. She wasn't there, but it's a national trauma. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of factors that contribute to our success in the business sector, but I do, I really do believe that it's, that there's a social, historical element here. DNA. I, 100%. I mean, it's imprinted in our DNA. Absolutely. Yep. Well, that's why we talk about all those letters, OCD and ADD and all those things yep. that in other places in here too can be seen as an impediment, right. but somehow here they're harnessed in such a way to make us a little bit more creative. I don't right. know. Maybe I'll... No, so I agree with you. I, I always say my ADD is my biggest gift, um, but, I, but I don't think it's a little bit creative. And you talked about thinking out of the box. I think that that's the understatement of the century. What do I mean by that? 
I don't think Israeli entrepreneurs think out of the box. I think Israeli entrepreneurs don't have a box. Okay, and I'll just, I'll give you one example that I like to give because it's so out there and it is so outrageous that no human brain would think of this, but an Israeli entrepreneur did. Just one example. If you think about your office, your home office, your work office, we all have, you know, these devices have evolved. Our computers are so much more powerful. Our mobile phones are supercomputers. Everything's evolved, except for one thing. There's this one device that sits next to your computer and it's this big clunky thing and you're like, I need to print something now. Oh man, right. I gotta like dust. Why have printers not evolved? Why, why are they not this big? The answer is very simple. You need to put a paper into the printer. Right. So it can't be smaller than a piece of paper, right? right? Comes along a guy named Tuvia Elbaum in Jerusalem, American originally, he says, wait a second. Why do you even have to put the paper into the printer? And you're like, well, how else will it print, right? Sit down for this. The guy built a mobile robotic printer that's this big. You put the paper down and you put the printer on it and it walks on the paper and prints. Amazing. It's this big. Wow. So the name of the company is Zuta Labs and they're talking to some big companies who obviously I can't name right now, but I mean, that's just an example of like, who even thinks that way? Israeli entrepreneurs think that way. And, and you know, another thing about Israeli entrepreneurs is if you tell, and of course I'm generalizing because life is about generalizations, but if you tell the average Asian entrepreneur or American entrepreneur, what you're trying to do is impossible. So they'll say, okay, let's figure out what to do. This mm -hmm. is impossible, let's move on. And if they fail, at least in Asia, culturally, they're done. Mm -hmm. In Israel, you tell an Israeli entrepreneur something's impossible, it will be built in two days. Right. And if they fail, that's part of their, I, I can tell you, I personally had two failed startups. And I am super proud of that because I learned tons from my failure. So failure here is not only not discouraged, it's encouraged. It's also biblical. If you read the Bible, yeah. as opposed to all the other ancient books that we have, it's the only one that highlights our failures. Interesting. Okay, we lost this war and this is why, because we weren't behaving properly, because we didn't this and we didn't that. That is really built into our code, is to learn from our failures and not swagger. That's right. one of the things that Love I've it. noticed here, and I'm surrounded by heroes in this country, and you are as well, you don't see a lot of swagger. Right. All right, a lot of people are like, yeah, and this, this, this is how it goes. Over the past, I'd say five years, something like that, I started to um, look at the Torah differently. I started to look at the Torah, whether it's Talmud, Dafyomi, which I started recently, or the, the weekly Torah portion. I started to look at them from an eye of, not business, but a but global, mm -hmm. a global perspective. And I realized that every single portion, Everything. every single page has lessons for the world. And so I started to post them on social media. Like, you know, every Friday when I sign off for Shabbat, 25 hours offline, I post a Dvar Torah, I post a piece of Torah, not for religious people a piece of Torah with global lessons. Right. Every day I learn a, 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 a daf page of Talmud and I share a lesson. Now, sometimes a daf, sometimes the page is very technical, so it's hard to find a lesson, but I try. Um, and it's always just, you know, profound, global, and just incredible deep lessons that people can really use on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'll give you one, I haven't even posted it yet, but today, in this, today's, today's page, it talks about the concept of getting a ruling from God or from person. Meaning if God comes out of the heavens and say, from now on, you're not allowed to eat chicken. And we look at, you know, one of our rabbis and the rabbi say, you are 100% allowed to eat chicken. Who do we listen to? You'd think, God said no. They listen to the rabbi. No, they listen to the rabbi. Because God says, I'm giving you as a human being the ability to make a decision, the ability to have free choice, the ability to use the brain that I put in your head. Don't listen to me, I built the world. You do what you do, you do you. Because that's, that's a Judaism. It's not a, you know, this holy it's thing. It's not about fate either. It's, it's not about us. like it's all dictated, you know we what? get to choose. I can't tell you how many times, it happened to me the other day on LinkedIn, I think. I posted a question, should I share Torah lessons here on LinkedIn? And it was like a whole discussion. And one guy said to me, go ask a rabbi. And I'm like, what, ask a rabbi? What? Not everything needs to be, you know, right. so you have a brain, you have common sense, use your brain, you know? 
But some people view it that way. That's not Judaism to me. Judaism to me is you were given abilities, you were given skills, use them. Right. Exactly. And we were all given gifts. Each one of us were given a gift. How did you get into this? Because you are such... I hate to use the word ambassador because it's okay. over... You, you can take it. I mean, they talk about... As long as you don't call me an influencer, I'm okay with that. Okay, fine. <laughs> No, because, I mean, I feel that to some degree I'm an ambassador when I'm able to tour guide because we're, we're, we're showing in Israel, we're explaining things yep. that you can't in any other way. How did you, Hillefold, how did you get into this? Because you are so enthused, you are so passionate about this country and what we're producing, not just as an individual, but the people. I mean, right. you are about connecting people. Right. It's not about promoting yourself. It's about promoting the people that right. you have access right. to. Right, right. So How did we'll you talk about this? that because it's a really important point that you just nailed. I don't even think you nailed it, but we'll talk about that in a second. But um, so I moved here when I was 15 with my family. Um, Zionism was, you know, in our veins since age zero. Uh, my dad was the principal of SAR in, in New York, and uh, we came on a sabbatical year when I was in sixth grade. And the deal was, once you finish the sabbatical, you have to go back to SAR for three years to be the principal. You can't leave before three years are over. Three, three years on the day we were on a flight to Israel, wow. literally. So he made Aliyah 28 years ago. And, you know, again, I was brought up in a, in a home of Zionism, of, of education, and of giving. And I started, you know, I studied, I went to high school, went to the military, I was in artillery in the military, and I went to learning in Shiva. And then I went to Bar Ilan University, and I studied political science, which obviously has nothing to do with what I do right now. <laughs> I just found it to be interesting. I knew I wasn't going into politics, but I found it to be a fascinating uh, degree, and I loved it. And then I finished my degree, and, some, and I was like, now what? I'm not going into politics. Like, and, and by the way, rewind a couple of years, I turned on a computer for the first time and I was like, holy cow, I need to work with this. It blew my mind. So I knew at some, I knew I was going to work in the world of technology. I had no idea how, because I'm not an engineer. Like, so I finished this degree in political science and I said, all right, now what? And someone said to me, you have English, right? You like to write and you love technology. Go be a technical writer. Now, for those that don't know what a technical writer is, it's the guys who write the user guides you get with your iPhone that no one ever reads. Right. Right. So it's, it's a long story, but I took a course in technical writing. And in the course, the instructor said, and you know the instructor, she lives here, but uh, she said, this is a, 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 a course for beginners. She said, don't go sending your resume for 10 years experience. You're like, you're starting off. Of course, the day I finished the course, I saw a position for 10 years experience at a very big tech company. So what did I do? I sent out my resume, thinking there's no way they're calling me. Like I'm completely unqualified. For whatever reason, I have no idea why, they called me in. They put me in front of a screen. And on the screen was an SME. What's an SME? A subject matter expert, an engineer, who's talking a third English, a third Hebrew, a third Russian about the most complex things you can possibly imagine, like, you know, acronyms. And, and, and what was the goal? To intimidate me, to see if I could answer questions. Now, remember, I love tech. So when this engineer said, and the MSISDN, to me, I was like, I know that an MSISDN is a phone number. It's just a fancy way of saying a phone number. I knew this stuff because I lived and breathed tech. So I answered the questions. I went home to my wife and I said, that was a fun experience, but clearly I'm not qualified. They called me back for a second interview, and then a third interview, and then a fourth interview. And on the fifth interview, literally, they called me and said, listen, you are super ADD. Can you really sit and write documents 10 hours a day? And I'm like, are you kidding? I, I, this was my dream since I'm a little kid, right? My dad always <laughs> says to me, you're on a job interview, pretend it's the last job on earth. Anyway, I got the job. Lie, in other right. words, yeah. Okay. I got the job, and um, I was there for a couple of years, bored out of my mind. And one day I'm sitting at my, my little cubicle, and I said, this is crazy. I love tech, I love writing. What am I writing these user guides? So I opened the internet and I started to write. The word blog did not exist back then. I definitely didn't know what my business model was. I was just writing. A cup of coffee and a blog post every day without calling it that. And then people started to say to me like, what's your end game? Like, what are you doing this for? Put ads at least, make some money. And I'm like, I have a job. This isn't a job for me. I love, I love tech, I'm deeply passionate about it. I'm gonna start writing about it. Within about three to four months, entrepreneurs started to reach out to me and say, listen, I read your article, I'd love to meet you. 
And that's when my imposter syndrome kicked in and has not stopped since. Because here I am, some random dude writing on a keyboard, and you're a brilliant CEO of a company. What the heck do you want from me? But I was like, you want to meet? Sure. So I meet with these entrepreneurs, and I quickly realize something. In Silicon Valley, there's the engineer and there's the founder. The engineer and the CEO. In Israel, it's the same person. <laughs> and so when I'd sit with the CEO, I'd say, so what do you do? The answer to that question always began with, we developed an algorithm. And I'm like, dude, stop. No one cares about your algorithm. What do you do? Like, what value do you bring to this world? Mm -hmm. They couldn't answer me. And I'm like, this is a brilliant human being who built like remarkable tech and he can't tell me what he, he can't communicate. So I said to them, okay, stop. Here's your pitch. This is how you tell your story. And then I'd say to them, all right, who are your competitors? We have none. I'm like, are you for real? Like, you think no one else in the world is trying to solve the problem you're trying to solve? Are you like, so I told them who their competitors are. And then I'd say to them, all right, what's your go to market? Meaning you have this product, how are you gonna get into the hands of consumers? And I got the most absurd answers. They just had no clue. That was known for a while, right? That Israelis were really bad yeah, at marketing. Yeah, early days. We've gotten a yeah, lot better. Yeah, yeah. But, so they had no clue. So I said, all right, let me help. And again, there was no money. This wasn't a business. So I helped. Sometimes entrepreneurs would come to me and say, you know, I want an introduction to an investor, you know, introduction to Michael Eisenberg, who was my childhood friend. So I sent an email saying, Michael, do you want to meet this guy? Yes, boom, done. Took me 12 seconds, right? So the investor gains, the company gains, and I lost nothing. So that's when people started to say to me, what are you, a friar? Because in Israel, being a friar is the worst thing you can be. I'm like, I'm helping someone. What, what, what did I lose, you know? But what did was, you gain? I didn't gain anything. Except for the satisfaction. Yeah, but no, I did actually, you know, I correct, I stand corrected. I did gain. Why? Because now the startup, I gained what's called uh, social equity. Because now the startup loves me, right. knows what I did for them. The investor's like, wow, hello, thank you so much. And when the, when the entrepreneur comes back to me and says, take 5% of the millions of dollars you just brought us, I'm like, I don't want your 5%. Go six, all I did was send an email, which was very uncommon in Israel, again, because people mm -hmm. are afraid of being a friar. So I, when people said to me, like, why are you not taking money? The truth is, if I'm being honest, I didn't have an answer. It was, a, it was a legitimate question. I didn't have a sophisticated answer. I said, I'm helping someone, whatever. Turns out, in retrospect, 10 years later, not taking money was the smartest thing I ever did. Why? Because when everyone around me was saying, pay me and I'll do something, I was saying, what are your challenges? You tell me your challenges. I said, I'm going to fix them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to overcome them. Money? We'll talk about money. Money will come when you realize you need me. Till then, let me help. Wow. And so many of these companies came back to me, literally sometimes 10 years later, and said, listen, we know what you did for us. Now we're worth billions of dollars. We want to work with you. Name your terms, which is the most important words. Why are those the most important words? Because if I come to you and I say, pay me and I'll do something, you define the terms. Meaning, okay, you're going to do it for me, I'll pay you 5,000 shekel. Right. But if you come to me and say, I need you, now I define the terms. Right. I have the leverage. It's a, very, it's a very strange business model, but it worked. Anyway, long story short, it, it kind of grew and grew and grew and grew over, year, over the years. And today, what I do is I wear four hats. Hat number one is startups. When I say startups, till today, 98% of the companies that I meet don't pay me a dime. I also don't spend millions of hours on them, but if I can help them, don't pay okay. me a dime. The 2% pay my whole investment, just like a venture capitalist. I, I don't make any money on the 98%, but the 2% that come back to me and say, we want to work with you, right. they return my whole investment. Okay, so that's hat number one, startups. Hat number two is content. I produce a ridiculous amount of content on the internet, whether it's written content where I write for every leading tech publication, TechCrunch, The Next Web, VentureBeat, Inc. Magazine, Entrepreneur Magazine, Fast Company Magazine, I write a ton. Uh, I produce a video blog that I, pre-COVID, was doing every day where I just interview the movers and shakers of the tech ecosystem in Israel. And the reason behind that was that I was in Silicon Valley and I was talking to executives at Apple and Facebook and Microsoft and everyone knew Israel. Everyone was talking about Israel. I said, oh, you know Waze? They're like, oh, we love Waze. I'm like, oh, so you know Uri Levine, the CEO of Waze, the founder of Waze. They're like, never heard of him. 
I'm like, what do you mean you never heard of him? I'm like, you know, Wix. They're like, oh, Wix is such an amazing company. I'm like, oh, so you know Avishai. Who's Avishai? I'm like, what? You know who Mark Zuckerberg is. You know who Jack Dorsey is. Why doesn't anyone know who Amnon Shashua is? I'm like, this is fascinating. I meet these people anyway. I'm going to bring a camera. Start interviewing people. So I started my video blog up to episode 450-something. And then about a year ago, I started a podcast, an audio podcast, where we interview people. We talk tech. We brought Nathalie Bennett on. We brought the head of product at Waze on. We brought some amazing guests. And so that's the second hat, content. The third hat is just public speaking. I do a bunch of public speaking around the world about Israel, entrepreneurship, marketing, and my v- business philosophy, which is be a mensch and everyone will win. Mm-hmm. That's it. So that's, I mean, it's funny. You'd think it wouldn't be so unique, but it's a unique, you know, it's a unique philosophy. Like business is not a zero sum game. Everyone thinks that if I take money out of my pocket and give it to you, I must be losing. That's not the case. Right. Everyone can win. So that's, and then the final hat is I work with multinationals like Google and Oracle and Huawei and a couple of others as a for lack of a better term, brand ambassador. Everyone, okay. They all call it something else. Google has a program called Google Developer Experts, where they bring experts into headquarters once a year. Huawei has a thing called Key Opinion Leaders. Oracle has an Oracle Startup Advisory Board. It's all the same thing. I work with these companies as like an ambassador. Some of them send me products. Some of them fly me out to California. Whatever it is, it's just a win-win. But bottom line, to sum up all my four hats, is I'm a kid in a candy store. I meet the most outrageous people every single day. And I'm going to add one more thing. I have massive imposter syndrome. I, I'm telling you the truth. Not a day goes by that I don't feel like this whole thing's going to come crashing down because what have I done in my life? I love tech and I started to write about it. That's it. So it's, it's, it's something that I'll, I don't think I'll ever get over. I'm telling you the honest truth. So I, I'm going to say that I think there's more here. It's not that you love tech so much. You love people. That's true. And you love your people and you love this country. And I, and I think that that's what drives you more than anything else. And I see when I read what you write about other people that what comes through is what a nice person they are. All right? Because... You know, all along, it's like you have to be hard-nosed and mean to be a good businessman. You have to be cutthroat. And you're approaching it differently. You're like, this guy is an amazing guy. This guy gives a lot of charity. This guy made sure at 2 in the morning, even though he had a busy day the next day, that he went to visit a friend whose father just died. Whatever it is, you highlight the aspect that's not the money aspect of it. Right. So it's an interesting point. It's the menchie, if you will. 100%. It's an interesting point because... One of the words that don't exist in English, there are words that exist in English that don't exist in Hebrew, there are words in Hebrew that don't exist in English, right? Right. So one of the words that doesn't exist in English is firgun. You know what mm, firgun means? Oh, like, yeah. To give props, right? To just let fargan them, you should say something nice about someone. There's right. no such word in English. Right. It doesn't exist. Don't even try to think. No, no I, such know, word. I know. My mind's and working. Honestly, it's like, like not happening. I built my whole career on that because without getting too deep into the marketing philosophy, if I build a stage, whether that stage is virtual or physical, and I get to decide who stands on that stage, mm-hmm. what does that say about me? That says I'm the owner. Right? right, And so when I write a post talking about another person, I'm basically letting that person stand on my stage. Okay. Right? And so without mentioning a word about myself, I get promoted because if my feed is full of rock stars and the only thing they have in common is that they're all standing next to me, well, what does that say about me? Right? So it's a marketing tactic. Having said that, pre-COVID, I would meet people, take a selfie, write about them, promote them, great. Comes COVID, I have no more face-to-face meetings. I'm like, I'm not stopping this. So I start to do daily features on people where I would you know, post a picture of us together and talk about, you know, who they are, what they are, what they do, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, it's fascinating because, again, this wasn't a business. It's like, I just did it because I like doing it. You cannot even imagine the amount of messages that I've gotten from people. Feature me, I'll pay you. I'm like, I'm featuring people <laughs> that I know. I'm not featuring I'm strangers. the points, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, I, I honestly, I'll keep, I could say it from now, you know, being a mensch in business is the best business model because if you, I'll tell you my whole entire philosophy in one mathematical equation. When I focus my time and resources on value, now what does value mean? It could mean connecting you to my uncle who's an investor. 
It could mean connecting you to a journalist. It could mean helping you with your pitch. Whatever it is, when I focus my time and resources on helping you, the entrepreneur, win in any way, you have no expectations. You're not paying me. So if you have no expectations, all I can do is exceed expectations. And when I exceed <laughs> expectations over and over and over and over again, I create delight. It's delightful. These entrepreneurs come to me with like hearts in their eyes. Now we can talk money. Because anything that brings you delight in your life, you'll pay for it. A good cup of coffee, you'll pay for it. So I'm in the business of delight. Let me delight. And if money doesn't come back, okay. What did I lose? I lost nothing. A couple of emails, a couple, big deal. They bought me lunch, who cares? But again, that's a very not Israeli mentality. From my perspective, I always say that business is like a candle. A candle has fire. It gives its fire to another candle, it loses nothing. It just creates more fire in the world, right? And I once said, this is a funny story, I once said this to a guy named Christoph, clearly not Jewish, at IBM Ventures, okay? We were talking, I said, business is like a candle, you know, if you don't give your, he says to me, hell, I'll take it one step further. I said, he says to me, if you don't give your fire, you're gonna end up burning out yourself. I was like, right. Christoph, you should be a Hasidic Rebbe. Totally. <laughs> that's, that that's a beautiful... It's a beautiful addition, right? That's a beautiful addition. true. At the end of the day, business is not a zero-sum game. If you help others win, you end up winning. Period. Full stop. So I'm sitting here as somebody... First of all, we're sitting here in my home in Efrat. Beautiful home. Uh, thank you. Deeply involved with you, Dava Shamron, not just through Winnesel Fund, through virtually everything that I do in my life and, and a lot of political activism in the last few decades. And I'm thinking to myself, we need you as the brand ambassador for Judea and Samaria. Because, you know... We've talked about this before. We talk about Israel and the kind of dichotomy between people understanding that Israel is this incredible place to do business, even while they don't really like Jews that much. So there's this like weird thing that's going on in the BDS movement and all what's kinds. That word, what's that word in, in psychology? It's a dissonance. Dissonance. Ah, exactly. Like very nice. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. So there's a dissonance when it comes to Israel, when it comes to Israel, as you so eloquently described, what Israel is doing for the world. And I think about Yudav Shamron. I think about Judea and Samaria, the people living here whom I know very, very well, many of them, and I go around to the different communities, and the people here are outstanding. But the image that's out there is so different from what's actually happening here. Right. If you could be the ambassador for you, Davish, let's just like take it there. It's, it's not a business. Well, it's more than a business. It's right. our heartland. It's, it's not just the biblical heartland. It's, it's where so many things are going on here now. It's in the headlines all the time, right. but usually not for positive reasons. Right. I mean, we even have... Israel's own, you know, interior, whatever he is, the minister of police, who is emphasizing the very small number of people who don't behave the way they should and who we come after for not behaving the way they should, as opposed to everything that's happening here. If you could, even for a week, give advice or take over the, the PR, as it were, for you, Dom Sherman, what would you do? It's interesting because you share a lot in common in that regard. By, I mean by that, that I live in Beit Shemesh. When I tell these secular people that I work with, I live in Beit Shemesh, what do you think they think? About the ultra-Orthodox Jews throwing stones. Right. Shabbos, Shabbos. There are about 300 people in the entire city who do that. Right. It's a beautiful, gorgeous city with unbelievable mountains, but that's all I think. Mm -hmm. So I've, I've, come, I've become the unofficial ambassador of Beit Shemesh. I'm like, guys, stop it. It's not what you think. Come visit. And they come right. visit. They're like, holy cow, this is gorgeous. It's literally the most beautiful places in the entire country. So now, you know, we share that in common. Um... Listen, I don't know that I have an answer um, about how to, you know, improve the uh, image of Yudav Shamron. I don't have a specific answer, but I will say this. I, I met with uh, Peter Lerner. I don't know if you know who that is. Mm -hmm. Many years ago, he was the spokesman of the IDF. Amazing guy. I met with him when he was in the spokesman's office. He was the spokesman. And we talked, and I said, what are we going to do? Like, on Twitter, you know, there's a, a hundred million of our enemies who are just saying whatever. They, you know, Lies. Israelis are raping girls. Like, what... They don't, they don't care about truth. There's no, it's not even an ideal of theirs. They just don't stick to the truth. And we have to stick to the truth. And we're 
300 people and there are 300 million people. What do we do? And he asked me that. And I said, listen, the numbers will never win. No. But I want to believe as a Jew and as a person that truth does prevail eventually. And I don't know when that eventually will happen. So, I mean, the only thing I can say is there's some things that there's some battles you're not going to win. You're not going to win by debating a person on Twitter or on Facebook. No. You are going to win by making the world a better place. And so, so many incredible things go on in Yehudah Shamon that I don't think get enough publicity. Whatever it may be, whether it's wineries, whatever oh it my is, God, the food charities, scene, forget it. Saying. So, that, that there should be, in my humble opinion, I'm sure there are many websites. From my perspective, though, there should be there should be JudeanSamaria.com, and on JudeanSamaria.com is literally anything and everything that shows the power of the community here. Because, like you said. There, there is no one in this country that are just better quality people than here. This is the cream of the crop. And so, again, the world talks about it. The West Bank, it talks about settlers. The world doesn't know the other side because, honestly, we stink at PR. So, you know, it's very nice to throw out a tweet. Throw, if there would be a centralized resource where I could say, what is going on in Yudav Shemron? What is happening in Judea and Samaria? Boom. JudeanSamaria.com. Everything. It could have tabs, charity, you know, uh, mental health. Whatever, hospitals, whatever it is, but all the things that are meaningful and powerful that are happening in Judea and Samaria should be centralized in one place so that there's no debating it. Look, it's right here. You want the number? Call them. Look, look at their Twitter account. Look at, it's all there. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's, you know, and of course, obviously, it needs to be magnified and amplified and distributed using social media because I don't need to tell you social media is a megaphone, the likes of which we've never had. I can tell you stories that have happened to me you would not believe. So, you know, you have these platforms, and if there's content, to distribute, it does well. And I think there's a ton of content here. It's just not centralized. It's very fragmented. It's very all over the place. There should be a central, and there might be, by the way. I don't know if there mm-hmm. is, but either way, again, I don't know, JudeanSamaria.com, is there even such a website? There should be. There right. should be, with everything there. Like even, it's a bad comparison, but even at HM, there's Shemesh phone, which has all service providers. It's not the same. I'm not saying it's the same, but right. there should be a centralized location where if a person wants to know the truth about what's going on in Judea and Samaria, here it is, right in front of your eyes. Uh, that would be the first thing I would that's do. That's the problem, though, with social media also, is the truth is based on whoever just yeah, put it up there. I mean, no you know what, it, what? What's the problem to do that? Because there's constantly detractors and people that are putting things out. Look, what, what Israel Fund has done is pick the niche, which is the niche is to make life better for the people living here so that people will stay and then more people will come. Sometimes a playground in the community is what it will take. A medical center in Benjamin is what we're doing now. Just because the quality of life here is really phenomenal. You're familiar with these communities. 100%. It's still communities where people don't lock their doors. It's still communities where if you have a baby or, on the flip side, your, fa- your father dies or you need some help and you're sitting shiva, you're just inundated with love and with people coming in. So let me tell you a story that happened to me last week, and I don't want to get too political, but I think this is an important story that illustrates the complexity. I've been known to go down that path. Okay. It, just, it illustrates the complexity, or I should say the lack of, the double standard, let's call it. So I was visiting my brother in, here in Judea and Samaria in Tekoa, um, and we had a, a Hanukkah party. And... Luckily, you'll understand why in a second, uh, we came in two cars. My wife came in her car, came in my car, which is something we don't usually do. And on the way back, um, on the roads that are not exactly Jewish friendly, let's just say understatement of the century, uh, my ways went crazy. My ways had no idea where I was. It was showing me off-road. It was telling me to make U-turns into, into Palestinian villages. It had no idea where I was. My first thought was, now I understand how these people make wrong turns and get lynched in Ramallah and get, because we depend on ways for this stuff and ways... So Waze completely lost it. I'm telling you, I was terrified. I, I didn't know how to get home. If my wife had not been two cars in front of me, I probably would not be here today, if I'm being honest. Just a couple of days before, someone made, you know, these two Hasidic Jews made a wrong turn and were almost lynched to death, right? So, you know, that was one of the scariest things in the world. But 
you know, then you think about it, and you see these signs, you see these signs on the entrance to Palestinian villages, Jews are not allowed to drive here, Israelis, you can't enter. It's like, imagine a place where I said, Asians, you can't come here, uh, uh, blacks, you can't come, it's, it's absurd. And then we see people, Palestinians, walking around, by the way, I gotta say, again, I don't wanna get too political, but let's not call it Palestinians, can we call it Arabs, please, because... Whatever it's like. important. No, it's important. Like this is imp- words matter. And if anything I learned from Ari, we'll talk about Ari. But if there's anything I learned from Ari, is that words matter. And oh yeah, you know they call themselves Palestinians. It doesn't mean I have to fall for their trick, right? There's no such thing as an Arab Palestinian state. There never was. There never will be. It's it's a joke. Yasser Arafat, an arch terrorist, made up that that word in 1967. And we're all like, oh, Palestinians. No, Palestine was a Jewish country with coins that say the menorah on them. Let's let's not. Okay, so I'm gonna say Arabs. Uh, you know, th- th- there are these signs, no Jews allowed, no, Israelis can't drive here, and then Arabs walk around freely in our malls, and our, every- I went to buy, this morning, I went to buy candy in the mall in Sarona in Tel Aviv, big burqa, literally, I'm like, what? can you imagine me selling it, it's just, there's no, and, and, and even despite all that, we're still the oppressor, it, it, like, right. that's what I'm saying, there's no integrity well, here, there's no truth. Well, that's what I was saying about the truth, that we can say the truth, but then because people aren't here and aren't seeing for themselves, so they get taken down into a pack of lies. And you brought up Ari, so but one of the things- one more thing, sorry to sure, interrupt you. absolutely. You can debate opinion. You can't debate facts. If I show you that there's a business here that takes care of special needs kids, here's the address, here's the phone number, you can't, there's no denying that, it's a fact. So if we show it and we display it in a way that there's no debate, then they'll have a harder time debating it. Whereas right now, it's like, Israel's the, you know, the, the most moral country, most moral army in the world. Okay, we know that's true, but that's a subjective opinion, right? When it's fact, it's fact. You can't deny that. So to me, I think we need to move a little bit closer to the fact and leave opinion on the side. Just my opinion. Well, what's been so frustrating about the last two years and the world essentially closing down to a great degree because of COVID is not being able to show people the facts. When people come here and I take them to these places and what you said is very true and something I fight against. A lot of times people don't wanna come into these areas because they're afraid. So one of the things that One Israel Fund does is try and lower the fear factor by providing security cameras and things like that so that people understand that everything is gonna be okay. So, you know, um, but, but what that means is that the bad guys win because by attacking and about by making us afraid, then we don't go in and really make 100%. our opinions. And that's something that we have to fight against all the time. Tremendous it's something problem. that I've tried to do um, to, to, turn, to turn awe away from fear and into the wow, because there's a tremendous wow in your Dabba Shamran. And, and you mentioned Ari before. So Ari, your brother Ari Fold, who, as I'm sure, uh, if not all, then most of our listeners know, um, was on the Kitat Kununut, who was on the the emergency squad, which is all volunteers here in Efrat, and uh, someone who was very out there in physically protecting Jews, doing reserve duty, even though he wasn't a little kid anymore, and he was married, and he had every reason to not do it anymore. Always volunteer. volunteer. And not only that, but doing what he could in terms of speaking, uh, going out as much as he could, doing it from his home. Even before COVID, he was giving, like on Zoom on Fridays, he was giving a little Dvar Torah, and doing whatever he could to get the truth out to the world. And he was murdered. Uh, not far from here, um, by a child, an Arab child, who, who knifed him in the back. And, and in terms of heroes, the last thing that he did was save somebody else's life. All right, as, as everyone knows, as he's losing all his blood and maybe he could have saved himself, he chased down the terrorist and prevented the terrorist from killing someone else. Who then um, became a part of the full family, by the way. Who then I know became part of the full family. And for the people who don't know, so Ari's daughter, Tamar, 
grew up a great deal in this house. She's best friends with one of my daughters, and she's really like like one of my own. She's got the code to the house. She knows the shelf in the freezer where her cookies are, and she's really a part of the family. So for many of us, Ari was Ari, somebody that we knew, and then he became, to some degree, a hero and, and larger than life afterwards. Um, his legacy, in my mind, is to not be afraid, all right? Especially because of how he died, is to not let the murderers and the evil ones dictate how we live, is to further encourage settlement in Yudav Shomron, building in Yudav Shomron, holding on to these places, because otherwise, evil wins. And I mean, I do believe from what I knew of him that that would have been what he was saying to us now is, don't be afraid because of what happened to me. Come in, and that's what I try and do. I try and bring people specifically to the place where he was killed, and we have lunch there. We talk about him, and we eat lunch there, and we watch the Arabs and Jews all shopping there together, and we live. And right. we make sure that it continues, um, despite the way he was killed, maybe because of the way he was killed. But as his brother, how does that, how does that affect you and what you do? How long do we have? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> So Ari and I grew up together in the same house because we're five boys and the older story out of the house and eight times a little kid. So me and Ari were, grew up together. Um, and, you know, at the Shiva, my dad said something that blew my mind. Blew my mind. And I don't know if you heard this or not, but it's worth repeating. Um, when he was born, by now it's, let's say, 50 years ago. Um, they like, wow. yeah, right? 46 yeah. years ago, yeah. Yeah, around 50. Um, they named him Ari. Now, Ari in Hebrew means a lion. But when people were called Ari back then, it was a, sh it was a short name for Arie. Ari was not a, it wasn't a common name, okay? People said to my parents, like, why are you calling him Ari? What's that? They said, we like the name. That was, they didn't name him because of that. They just liked the name. As Ari grew up, he developed some certain very dominant characteristics. For starters, he moved here to Israel before the family, volunteered for the IDF, right. climbed up the ranks, carried around the mag, which is a machine gun literally built for tanks. Oh, yeah. Like, it's meant to sit on a tank, and he carried it around. He was, a, he was an ox, right? He was yeah. a 4-3 black belt in karate. He moved here, and he literally, old school, conquered this land. Really, okay? You know, people say a hero, and he was literally, okay? Yeah. So that's the first thing. Second thing, I would, I would wake up sometimes at 4 o'clock in the morning, and I'd see him debating people on Facebook, like some anti-Semite, and I'd say, Ari, you're not going to convince him. Go to sleep. And he'd say to me, it's not about convincing him. It's about the thousand people watching this dialogue from the sidelines that now get to hear the truth. That was his answer. But he didn't sleep. I'm telling you, I don't know where the guy slept. He did not sleep. It was unbelievable. That's the second thing. The third thing, you knew him. He was a normative guy. Like, you yeah. wouldn't stop on the street and be like, that guy, guy's weird. He was a normal guy. But he had certain things that he was incredibly, incredibly passionate about. Davening, prayer. Yes. Like I said, he was a 4-3 black belt, so when many other people shuckle when they pray, he would stand there like a brick wall. You couldn't even move him. He was deep in meditation, really. Yeah. And one specific prayer that he was incredibly passionate about, and I don't know why, was Shema, which is probably the most important prayer in Judaism. The hero Israel. Right. And yeah. he, there are videos of him in the, in the Muslim quarter yelling on a megaphone, Shema Israel. And again, that sounds a little crazy, but if you knew him, you knew that was not the type of person he was. He was a, I'm saying he wasn't soft-spoken, but he wasn't like, Crazy. That's a crazy thing to do. He was so passionate about Shema. Another thing he was passionate about was tzitzis, the fringes for your, for, your, uh, for your clothing. He had an ongoing debate with a big rabbi about whether to wear the blue string or not blue string. Right. He was it's very, clear. very passionate about it. So those are a couple of things that characterized him. I'm now going to take out my phone and read something to you, if I may. Please. After he was murdered, my parents opened up the Tanakh, the Bible. And they found that in the entire Bible, 
the word Ari appears twice. The entire Torah. Okay, I'm not talking about the prophets. I'm talking about the Torah itself. I think I screenshotted it. Here it is. Okay, you ready for this? Because this is, I mean, you're going to get goosebumps. Okay. Guarantee you. I'm not kidding. Okay, so there are two, there are two, um, two mentions. The first one says, Kara shachav ke'ari. They crouch, they lie down like a lion. Like the king of beasts, who dare arouse them? Blessed are they who bless you, cursed are they who curse you. That's, that's, the, that's black on white. That's the verse. Okay? Now, if I were to ask you, define lion. What does Ari mean to you? What is the word lion? What does it mean? You would say, it's the strongest beast, it's the strongest animal, it's the king of the jungle. Right? right. That's what we, sit down for this. I'm reading word on word. I, I could show it to you if you don't believe me. Karashachav Kari. Kitargumo, this is what Rashi, the biggest commentator on the Torah says. What is Shachav Ari? What is Ari? Kitargumo, like Unculus. What does Unculus say? How does he define lion? I'm reading word for word. You ready for this? Hmm. Sit down. I'm sitting. Wow. They'll settle their land with strength and heroism. That is a lion. That was Ari. But hold on, it gets a lot crazier. If you don't have chills yet, just wait. The second time the word Ari appears in the Torah, I'm reading word for word. Hain am kilaviyakum. Lo, a people that rises like a lion, uche'ari nasa, leaps up like the king of beasts. Listen to this, you ready? Lo yishkav, he won't sleep ad yochal teref until he consumes his prey. He won't sleep. That is a lion. And what does Rashi say? This is going to blow your mind. I'm, word, I'm not making this up. You could read it. Heinam kilaviyakum, you ready for this? Kshehinomdimi shnatam shacharit, when they wake up, when a lion wakes up in the morning, they overcome like a lion to grab the commandments of the Torah. And which examples does Rashi give? Wow. The things that Ari did. That was his autobiography. That was his autobiography. My, my parents didn't even know this when they named him. But that was Ari's autobiography. That tells his entire story. It is remarkable how a single human being was able to impact millions of lives. And I'll tell you one more thing. When my grandparents were in Auschwitz, do you think in their wildest dreams, in a million years, they thought that their grandson would become a national hero of the state of Israel? Can you even imagine? If I told them that, they would have been like, you're on drugs. Like, what are you even saying? A national hero of the state of Israel. My brother. It's wild. So the truth is, like you said, in his last you know, breath, really, of the doctors don't last even know how he did this. Because, last beat of his heart. Yeah, he, he had, you know, the knife was in his main artery. He couldn't, he was dead on, on the spot. But somehow he managed to run 50 meters, jump over a wall, and shoot the guy. Uh, you know, he didn't kill him. He's in jail, hopefully for the rest of his life. But, um, you know, they invited us to the trial to see whatever. And I was like, I can't look at this guy in the face. But I'll tell you on a personal level, uh, the day I found out was, you know, people speak of the word trauma. I don't think someone that's never, you know, experienced trauma doesn't really understand what that means. Mm-hmm. I can tell you on a personal level that I was at some startup's office that morning. And in between tests, I opened up Ynet, the biggest, you know, news uh, website in Israel. And I saw the main headline, terrorist attack in Gush Etzion. And there was a video, a surveillance video. So what do you do when you see a big play button? You hit play. So I watched this video of a guy coming behind this big dude, stabbing him in the back, the guy running and shooting him. And I said to myself, who the heck is this Superman? Who is this guy? So I asked in the full family group, in the WhatsApp group, is everyone okay? And then I got a phone call from Donnie, who's one older than Ari, and says, words that I'll never forget for the rest of my life. It's him. I don't know if you remember us burning discs. Remember burning CDs? These memories of those moments are burned on my brain forever. Now, I had not known that, I didn't know at that point that he was dead, 
So I ran, obviously closed up on myself, ran to Shari Tzedek, the hospital, and on the way, Donnie said to me, don't rush. And I, uh, I may or may not have yelled a four-letter word in the car, which I don't often do, but um, then we got to the hospital. We were in the side room that's dedicated to families of terror victims, and slowly but surely, his kids started to come in, our family started to come in, and every time we had to break the news, and I can't think of a more traumatic thing than that. Um, the interesting thing is, and this is something I don't speak about often, is that what happened that day I remember the details, like such such like, small details that are insignificant. I don't. I, there's nothing I forgot about that day. Nothing. The day later, the week later, the month later, I don't remember a thing. Psychologists call it selective amnesia because yeah. you block it out. I'm telling you, if you had told, if you tell me right now that a month after Ari was murdered, I went to Aruba, I believe you. I don't remember a thing. Not a thing. So it was crazy, you know, and, and another thing is that people don't speak about the family of victims. People speak about terror victims, right. but nobody speaks about what it does to a family. And, and thank God my family is super duper strong. We have a phenomenal family, but no, I'm not going to say it broke us, but we're not, it will never be the same. You know what I mean? We're, we're yeah. five boys, um, very, very like, you know, like uh, un- unity, very strong kind of kibush, as we say in Hebrew. Right. Um, and again... I'm not saying, you know, we're sitting and, and, and wallowing in our sorrow. We're not. We're trying to do what we can. And Miriam is an absolute hero. She, His widow. Miriam's, Miriam's just a different level. I don't know what she's made out of, but I, I need to learn from her. Um, yeah, she's really something. But the bottom line is, you know, we're all trying to do our part in this world. But, you know, again, not to get too uh, mushy and sentimental here, but, you know, the sadness never goes away. Like, it's, it's there. Like, you know, right. let's transition a little bit to another topic we want to talk about, mental health. I can tell you that... After he was murdered, I'll tell you a really nice story. Uh, I was in bed. I couldn't move. And so a friend who sold this company $300 million, was obviously worth a lot of money, reached out to me and said, listen, I'd, you know, come to Tel Aviv, I want to meet you. And I said, listen, man, I love you, but I'm not, I'm not, not a good time. Meetings. Not now, like not, not even close. And this is a guy who's a very soft-spoken, not aggressive, very sensitive and gentle kind of guy. And he said to me, hello, please come. I was like, that's not like him at all, but okay. And I said, all right. So I come to Tel Aviv, I meet him. And I got to tell you that for the first, let's say, month after the murder, my biggest concern was how to support my family. I'm one person. I support the family. Right. How am I going to do that? I can't even get out of bed. I can't put on socks in the morning. Functioning. I was terrified. That was my biggest fear, if I ever get back to myself. So this guy calls me. I come meet him in Aroma in Tel Aviv. And he looks, this was, he sat me down. I sat across like we're sitting right now. And he says to me, Hillel, me and the hundreds of people that you've helped over the years, we are not going to let you fall. I started to cry and I went home. I, I, I think it's an actual, accurate statement to say that he saved my life. Listen, I wasn't, God forbid, suicidal, but I had no optimism left in me. I had no joy. I had no anything. When he told me that, I knew I had a, a comfort, like a cushion. Right. It changed everything. And then, and I'm not a superstitious kind of guy, right? I'm a pretty down-to-earth normal guy. But Friday afternoon, someone knocks at my door, a person I don't know. He says, you need to read this book. And he leaves. I said, okay, thank you. I read the book. The book is called Option B. It's a book written by Sheryl Sandberg, who was the chief operating officer at Facebook. Right. Her husband was in the gym one day and just dropped yeah. dead. Just yeah. dropped dead. So she wrote a book called Option B. Option A is sorrow. Option B is live life. And I read it. It was a great book. But one sentence in that book blew my mind. Because, you know, your friends want to be there for you. You lost your brother. They want to help you. And, and, and everyone was amazing. But the question that I got most often was, what can I do? Now, I can't figure out what socks to put on in the morning. I can't tell you what to do. Don't ask me what to do. Just do. do it. So in the book, she writes that someone called her in the, air, in the uh, hospital and says, Cheryl, what don't you want on your hamburger? 
Wow. You know, I'm bringing you a hamburger, but what don't you want right. on it? Should I leave the pickles off? Exactly. And I was like, that is so spot on. Make the, you want to help me? Don't ask me. Just do. And again, I don't, I, I don't want to sound like I'm throwing people under the bus. People were phenomenal. But it's a, it's a lesson. When someone has loss, don't ask them to make decisions. They can't make decisions. Decide for them. Take into account their preferences. What do you want on your hamburger? But don't ask them to decide what they want for lunch. It sounds so trivial, but it's not. You can't make decisions. Your brain is somewhere else. So that was something that I, between that one sentence that that guy said to me in that book, again, I wasn't, God forbid, suicidal, but it, it saved my life. It really, really saved my life. Um, but again, you know, The fact away. that you talk about this, though, I mean, Ari was brave in one way, and I think you're very brave in another, because you have brought up more than once on the social media platforms that you are on that a lot of people follow. You've brought up subjects that a lot of people shy away from, like mental health. So, That's still one of the big taboos, right. and it's there. And you know, we live in a country, and, and it's not just here, it's everywhere in the world, where people are suffering. Yeah. People are suffering, maybe it's a built-in depression and there's really no practical reason for them to be suffering, or maybe something happened that really did. How vulnerable do we want to get here? <laughs> However you so, want to. I mean, for, okay, so after Ari, you know, a month, two months, whatever, I went back to work. Why did I go back to work? Because I love what I do, and I wanted to distract myself. I didn't want to think. Right. And I thought to myself, I'll always be distracted. When am I ever going to be alone with my thoughts? There's always distractions. Sure. Little did I know that there was a pandemic coming. So here I am at home with my thoughts. It was not pretty. Combine that with my routine going from 100 miles an hour to zero overnight and other personal, all at once, I went into deep clinical depression. Now, I, you know, I'm the happiest person in the world. I never, ever dealt or knew anyone that dealt with this stuff. And I, I, and I again, you know, if I'm being, I couldn't move. My wife made me a cup of coffee. I couldn't pick it up. I'm not exaggerating. I could not leave the house. I, I was paralyzed. And I said to myself, you know, many people are suffering from this. You know, I spoke to yes. a psychiatrist. She said half this country is on antidepressants. The thing is, though, I said to myself, I have a platform. Everyone else is sweeping it under the rug. It's an important discussion. I can either do what everyone does or I can actually leverage my platform and talk about this important topic. So, you know, thank God I went to therapy. I'm taking meds and everything like that and I'm functioning and, and I'm going to be Drinking again very coffee again. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to be very vulnerable and say that the sadness is still there deep down. I wrote, you know, one of the things people said to me is, you know, when you're depressed, write a journal. And I wrote a journal and then six months later when I was quote unquote better, I went back to that journal to read it and it was, number one, I don't remember writing it. But number wow. two, it was, to say dark is such an understatement. I, I'll just give you one example. I wrote in the journal that I feel like I had a balloon in my stomach full of black liquid that exploded. I felt like I was black. Inside, just black. That's how I felt. So first of all, again, stuff doesn't go away. You can treat it, but the sadness is there and I think it will always be there. But I said to myself, I'm gonna use my platform. This is crazy. So I started to write about it. I started to write about Israeli companies that are, you know, trying to solve the mental health issues. And, you know, one of the things, for example, among many other problems, one of the biggest problems, I think, is that the way mental health is treated is you go to a psychiatrist, they give you antidepressants, they say, come back in eight weeks, let's see if it worked. Like, I can't function. Give me comfort. Don't tell me to come back. What am I, guinea pig? It's horrible. There's no personalized medicine. Whereas the rest of the world, you have a headache, I know what to do. You're depressed, don't know what to do. Come back in eight weeks. It's crazy. So there are many companies trying to fix that as well. But the bottom line is I start to write about mental health and don't, don't kid yourself. I got a ton of messages from people saying you gotta stop talking about it. Really? No one's gonna work with you. And I'm like, you know what? If someone doesn't wanna work with me because I'm depressed and my brother was murdered, don't wanna work with them. And I've gotten, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be conservative here and say that I've gotten 5,000 messages from people saying, 
you have given me a voice. I was terrified to talk about wow. my depression, about my anxiety, about you have given me a voice. And so that generally speaking, for me, and not only in this realm, but in all realms that I write about is the most satisfying thing in the world. You know, when I write about a certain topic and people say to me and thank me, I, you know, I couldn't talk about it. I, it's the fact that I'm using my legitimized my it to some degree. Yeah, you know, destigmatized it. Right. You know, it's this massive. I'm not. By the way, I did not destigmatize it. It's still a massive stigma. No, but but I think people are, you know, you at least in my network, it. are a little bit more comfortable talking about it. But um, you know, at the end of the day, I try to use my platform for good. Um, don't think that it doesn't come at a price. I've had my fair share of hate on the internet, whether it's anti-Semitism. I, you know, I spoke to the CEO of Twitter, who just left actually, Jack Dorsey, and I said to him, how do you allow this poison on your platform? And he literally wrote me back and said, we are dealing with it. This was years ago, and obviously he didn't deal with it. Yeah. But there's blatant anti-Semitism on social networks. I don't need to tell you that. I'm not talking about like, you know, free Palestine, which no, is a, no, whatever no. different discussion, but literally kill like all Jews. The Nazis didn't you know, finish the job. Yeah. It's all over the place. And so that's another thing that I try to, communicate and say, listen guys, you know, these Silicon Valley investors who are blatantly anti-Semitic but invest in Israel because in their mind there's this and there's this. There's one Israel. Stop it. There's no, you know, Israel that kills Palestinians and Israel that's saving the world. There's one Israel. And if you think that the same Israel that's developing cancer research is killing Palestinian kids, then you have to go get checked out because it's one Israel and we're doing good. Do we make mistakes? Of course we make mistakes. Do we own up to our mistakes? Yes. We're human. But we own up to them. Right. When God forbid an innocent life is lost on the other side, we own up to it. We yeah. make mistakes. But to compare that to just, you know, it's the whole essence, the whole, I don't even know what to call it, their whole existence of our, of, our, of our neighbors, of our cousins, of our enemies is false. The entire thing. Look at this, again, this isn't my opinion. Look in the 19th, look at the charter of the Palestinian Authority. What does it say? From the river to the sea, they want Israel. There's no settlements, there's no... There's every, no, Tel Aviv there's is no theirs. So let's not kid ourselves. And, and the irony of it all, the irony of it all is, I, you know, if let's say I'm a person who's pro-Palestinian, I'm saying, you know, give them what they want. They deserve a state. But they're saying to kill all the Jews. No, 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 they don't mean it. Hold on, are they adults or are they kids? If they're adults, treat them like adults. Listen to what they're saying. They're saying kill all the Jews. Are you okay with that? You're okay. If you're okay with that, fine. If you're not okay with that, then how are you in the same breath saying give these people a state? We gave them a state. Gaza, what happened? Thousands of rockets, tens of thousands of rockets. So what did Einstein say? A fool is the person who makes the same mistake again and expects a different right. outcome. Right. Well, what do you think is going to happen if we give them more land? All of a sudden they'll be peaceful? It's not, this isn't a question of, and this is another big problem, this isn't a question of land. This is a question of Western versus Eastern civilization. This is a clash of civilizations. There's an author who wrote a book called Clash of Civilizations. I don't remember who it is, but yeah. that's what this is. It's not, you know, anybody Huntington? who differentiates, who? Huntington, maybe? Yes, yes. I think so. Anybody who differentiates, you know, between ISIS and Hamas is kidding themselves. Their charters are, you can read them, word, word for word. They're, nobody wants a state. If they wanted a state, they could have had it 10 years ago. They don't want a state. They want dead Jews. And they say it. It's not like they, they if they hit it, be like, oh, they don't really. They no, say no, it. And yet, show honest. me one Palestinian leader, one, who says Israel has a right to exist. Don't tell me we want to make peace. Just say we have a right to exist. No one. No one's even saying that we you know, like to exist. You talk about there being one Israel, and obviously, you know, we're talking under the auspices of one Israel fund because that's 
some of the battle that we're having here is not just against the haters of Israel, but the haters within Israel. Because even within our own people and even oh, within boy. Israelis, we have people who don't understand the importance of continuing life in Judea and Samaria. That we are, to some degree, we call ourselves the shachpats, like the, the bulletproof vest of the country. That right. what goes on here is what keeps Tel Aviv safe. When 100%. the soldiers are in Hebron, they're not just protecting the people in Hebron or the people who want to go visit the Tomb of the Patriarchs. Right. They're making sure that the terror cells in Hebron don't go out towards Tel Aviv, which they have in the past. You mentioned right. that you were in Sarona last right. week or this morning, right? right? And that's, you know, so we're so much more than people understand. And that's part of that's part of the reason why this fund had to exist. It's because even Jewish organizations that have no compunction about putting up a soup kitchen in the Ukraine, and I'm not saying that in the Ukraine the Jews don't need a soup kitchen, will stop at the so-called green line and not do things for some of the people that I think are really the most magnificent people that I've ever met. 100%. You talk about trauma, you talk about, you know, I go to places where people have every reason to not get out of bed in the morning 100%. because terrible things have happened or they're worried about where they're living and what they do in order to battle back right. is they do. Yeah. Just I, by living where we live, right. just by educating our children, just by being optimistic, right. just by having faith, yep. or whatever that means in whatever, you know, your value system is, that there's a bigger picture here and that each one of us in our little way has to do something to make the world a better Correct. place. I don't know on a cosmic level where it's going, right. but if everybody just takes it upon themselves to get on the side of good, then collectively we make a difference. And you know, you talked about the importance of names and how it turned out that presciently your parents gave Ari a name that turned out to be his epitaph. I don't know what it was. So I think about it in terms of the name that they gave you also. You know, Hillel and Shammai were the two the, the, one of the Zugot, they were the, the pair of rabbis that's, that's maybe better known than any other pair of rabbis, and it comes up all the time, and they had differences of opinion on how things should be done and how things should not be done. And we usually go with Beit Hillel, who is seen as the more mellow one, but that's, that's erroneous. He was the one, I think, who brought people in, who understood that there was a way of doing things, but if people weren't going to do it, then it was irrelevant. That, and I see that maybe with what you're doing here, that you're all about the people. You love the country, you love the people, but your passion, and I think this is also maybe how you got out of your depression. And you know, in terms of the sadness, it's never gonna go away and maybe it shouldn't. You lost your brother and that's always gonna be there until you know, you're 120. But how you fight back against the evil that killed him right. is by creating more good and creating Israel, you know, making people understand really the truth about Israel. Right. So I'm going to tell you something I've never said publicly, but I think it's because you were talking about my name. This is, this is another chill-inducing thing. One of my therapists said to me, so what's your full name? So I told him my full name. Before I tell you my full name, we talked about this before, how I love Fergun. I love praising other people. Right. And she said to me, before she asked me my name, she said, so you, you, you built a career out of elevating other people. What does that make you feel? And I said, I feel whole. When I do that, I feel whole. I love helping other people. I feel whole. I feel like my life is complete. Ready for my full name? Mm. You're not going to believe it. Hillel, which means to praise. Right. Chaim, living. Mm. Shlomo, Shalim. Wow. That's my name. And peace. Can you imagine? Wow. Hillel, Chaim, Shlomo. It's unbelievable. I, I never thought about it until she pointed it out to me. But about the topic that you, you said that about, about our, our enemies from within, I got to tell you, and, and this is, again, my personal... The, the anger that I feel towards, I don't want to use the word self-hating Jew, but towards people that are anti-religious, anti-Israel, angers me 
substantially more than our, our enemies. Um, I've had smart people, really, really smart people that I respect tremendously on the professional side say to me, why are we here? We should be in Uganda. I don't know what we're doing here. Wow. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. He said that to me. Um, not to mention, forget about Judea and Samaria. I can tell you that the Ari Shiva, I'm not going to mention names, of course, but a very famous singer who has a lot of respect for my dad. It's a whole long story. Came to the Shiva. And she, this woman is about as anti-religious as anybody you could think of. Like, she is super anti, like angrily anti-Judaism. It's an emotional thing. Yeah. It's not just... She came to Efrat. For the first time in her life, she went over the green line. And she came into the house, and I said, so she's like, it's beautiful. She couldn't believe it. So I'm not saying she's going to come back again, but you know what? It's just, I, I, I got to tell you something. I was in the Canary Islands three weeks ago. Okay? Canary Islands uh, was running a campaign with the State of Israel where they were bringing in Israeli bloggers to promote the Canary Islands to the Israeli population. So we should me. do that with the people from Canary Islands. Yeah. yeah. So we, it was me, um, a food blogger, a travel blogger, and a lifestyle blogger, I think, or something like that. Um, not going to get into it, but I was, let's just say, culturally way out of my comfort zone. They were all like super secular Tel Aviv people, like... Different lifestyle than you. Let's just leave it at that. Uh, and as you can imagine, there's no kosher food on Canary Islands. So we had Chabad bring me food. But I'm sitting with these guys, all Israeli. First of all, eating pork, eating octopus, eating like, compl- without even like thinking twice. It, was, it wasn't even, then we started to talk and they're like, we have no, we've never been exposed to religious people. They're like, so are you Haredi? Are you ultra-Orthodox? We're like, no. They don't like, know the nuances at no, all. No, and I'm like, culturally, I'm much closer to you than I am to an ultra-Orthodox. They just didn't get it. And so, you know, it's, it's very, very we've sad for me. We've worked to do. It's very sad for me that, that there are so many Israelis who not only don't know anything about religion, but what they do know, they hate. And I got to tell you, I got to tell you, it's not our fault but I don't think we're doing a good enough job. Right. You know? And I'm and obviously not going to get into specific whatever, but like there, you know, I'll just give you one example. The other day when I was talking about uh, that story that happened to me with Waze, and I said, you know, had I made a wrong turn, I would have been lynched. And I, and, I, and I, in the comments or something, I said, when was the last time a Jew lynched an Arab? And unfortunately, one of the people who's anti-Israel posted that thing of when that Arab was uh-huh. burned in eight years the ago. The one, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one story, which me and you can agree was horrible. Like, right. there's no normal person that would say that that's not horrible. Right. Whereas at the other side, they give out candies. Yeah. You understand the difference? So I totally do. But, but when, when people, when Jews do act that way, it causes all of us damage. Yes, you it know, does. Because now it gives our enemies ammunition. Right, right. So yeah, listen, it's a complicated situation. I always say half-jokingly, but maybe not jokingly, that if there's ever going to be peace in the Middle East, it will be technology that's the peacemaker. Because Could technology be. is a consensus. Yeah. You know? Everyone agrees that technology is technology. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, as individuals, we have to do what we can do. And, and, not, uh, and not kid ourselves, though. We have to know what we're up against. Yeah. We can't lie to ourselves. We we're not we're making peace against. with people who teach their kids that killing Jews is the, is the most important thing in the world. Right. There's no peace to be made. Right. Educate your kids. You know, Golda Mayer's famous quote, when they love their kids more than they hate us, right? That will be the, that will be the end of the, the, the conflict. Yeah. Tomorrow we will say, let's make peace. Yeah. Put down our guns. What will happen? There'll be no Israel. Right. They put down their guns, there'll be peace. Right. It, 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 I, you know, maybe someone watching might think I'm oversimplifying. I'm not. Literally tomorrow, if the Palestinians, the Arabs, put down their, their weapons and say, let's make peace, the next day there will be peace. And I'll tell you more than that. They will have a Palestinian state more than what they want. Because, look, Omar offered them 98%, and they said no. Right. So if they really put down their guns, there will be peace. Period. That's the solution. Unfortunately, it's not even on their, it's not even their, like, mental, like, they're teaching their kids that Jews are pigs. And sh- this girl last week, 15-year-old girl right. going to school decided to stab a mother pushing a baby carriage. Like, how much hate, how much hate do you have to have poison in your heart to do that? Look, I think one of the things we learn as we get older is you can't really change other people. If you're lucky, 
you can work on yourself. Right. And so one of the things that I know that I do personally, and that's also why I'm involved with this organization, is we just have to better ourselves. We have to strengthen ourselves. We have to better ourselves. We have to keep an eye on our goal. Hopefully the other people around us will fall into line. They'll wake up. They'll have some kind of epiphany. They'll need clean water. I don't care what it is. I don't right. care if it's because out of love for us, out of need for us, irrelevant to right. me. But in the meantime, we've got to raise our kids with knowing what's right, Correct. how to behave decently, how not to become like the other, 100%. and to build communities and of faith, and but also to literally build these communities and be solid and make sure that you know we continue on to the future. And whatever happens around us, a lot of it is totally 100%. out of our control. 100%. But what is in our control, we have to double down. Correct. And I think, you know, again, how could you blame our enemies when within ourselves? We're not yes. sure about the fact that we deserve this land. Right. Like, you know, and so, I, of course, I'm not saying our enemies are righteous, amazing people, but like, they, they see the, they smell the weakness. They know right. that we're so weak. They know that half our country well, doesn't. Well, part of it is like almost a national depression. Like yeah. we got beaten down and told that we yep. were not good people for so long that somehow that infiltrated into our brains. It's just, it's... But this is the heart of our people. This is the, the physical heart of our people, and it's also the beating heart of our people. Yeah. And you open up the Tanakh in all these places. I mean, when, I'm go, when I go around as a tour guide with Jews and Christians, okay, the people who, who you read it and you see what happened in these places and the lessons that came yeah. out of these places, the mistakes that were made in these yeah. places, and the people who lived in them. And uh, this is so much more than anybody understands. I mean, the very air that we breathe yeah. is just saturated yes, and, with and, so much. And what frustrates me, again, I know I, I got way too political today, but it's just, you know, I'm a guy, as an Ari, what was his, his main line was truth. Tell the truth, even if it's bad, by right. the way, but tell the truth. Right. And like the, 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 the global narrative about Israel, what are you talking about occupation? What are you, there's not a Jew in Gaza. They ethnically cleansed Gaza. Not one Jew. Right. And still. One, not one, 10,000 rockets. What, the, the Palestinian, again, the Arab population, the growth looks like this. What kind of apartheid are that? What are you even talking about? <laughs> it's like, absurd. There's no, you know, occupation. What occupation was there in 1929 in Hebron? There was no state of Israel and we were massacred. Right. What were we massacred? Because they, they saw that in 20 years we're gonna occupy. Like, it's absurd and it's just, a, it's, it's laughable, but you, you know. No, but there's some insidious, there's really some insidious evil in there that we have to, we have to constantly fight by but, doing whatever yeah, we can. Yeah, but what frustrates me is you could, you could tell them the truth from now till you're blue in the face. Yes. They just aren't listening. They want to believe this occupation thing. What are you even talking about? Like, let's right. talk facts. Not a, I'm passionate, leave my passion on the side. Tell me what we occupied. When was the Palestinian Arab state founded? Who was the prime minister? What was the currency? What was the national land? Tell me, I want no facts. Yeah, but most people don't know their history and don't care. It's just unbelievable. And it's like the wave of political it's correctness. Like Jesus was Palestinian. Are you for real? Like, <laughs> seriously. It's just, the, 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 you know what the, you know the, the Talmud says, as you know, that before Mashiach, before Messiah comes, the world's gonna be backwards. Yeah. I wanna believe that that's what's happening. Everything's backwards. Yeah. So I hope it's a light at the end of the tunnel. Who knows? Coming from somebody who, has a good eye for what organizations and what businesses are worthy of support and what are like, you know, maybe another day. What do you feel about One Israel Fund? So there's a famous Mishnah, I believe, right? Stop talking so much and do. Right. I built my whole career on that. I don't promise anything, I just deliver. And that's how I view One Israel Fund because while I'm sure many of the people watching this or, you know, if I'd go over to 10 people on the street and say, what's One Israel Fund? Nine of them never heard of it. And that's good. Because that's by design, because you don't focus on PR, you focus no. on doing. And what you do are things that this community of Judea and Samaria needs more than anything. Whether it's security, whether it's enhancing the quality of life and bringing more people here. 
I can't think of a more important mission than this, right? Because as you said before, this is the buffer. Yeah. You know, and while the, I don't mean to throw anyone under the bus, but the, the folks that live in Tel Aviv, I love them, they're great. They view these settlements as this taboo thing. They don't realize that you are saving their lives on a daily basis, and that's not an exaggeration. So anything that can facilitate better quality of life and more security in Judean Samaria has my vote. But in the meantime, you, Hillel Fold, are doing what you can really to put Israel on the map. Okay, physically on the map, staying on the map. I mean, we're here. But uh, in any way that you can with your connections, and I'm sure that you don't even realize that the people that you've affected and connected who came to Israel because of some tip you gave them about some company that was going public or I don't know what it was that they should invest. And then they've gone back and they've talked to other people. We don't know. We probably don't know 90% of what we do. It's true. The waves. Learned that from Ari, by the way. Do. Yes, that's I, why I've I said that. literally thousands of messages from people saying, I loved your brother. I saw you met him. No. Did you ever speak to him? No. 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 Millions of people that he impacted without even saying a word to them. It's unbelievable. Exactly. So we have to keep that going yes, and do. just make sure that this continues because this is probably the greatest story that humanity, you're a writer. Israel is the best startup in history. Ever written and it is a schut. It is a complete privilege to be a part of it. 100%. And I want to thank you for joining me here today and for everything that you do and uh, that you should keep doing that and keep being honest. I think your honesty and sometimes I'll read something that you post and I'll think, that must have been so hard for him to write because I'm having a hard time reading yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, the truth sometimes is very hard. It's very hard. But, um, yeah, by the way, again, I said it before. And it comes at a cost. At a big cost. I know a big, it comes big at a cost. cost. I, there are many people out there who are not happy to see me succeed. Let's just yeah. say that as an understatement. Right. Well, there's jealousy and there's yeah. whatever. And that, it's very uh, unfortunate, but that's yeah, human, yeah. human and, nature. Yeah, and your family and everything else. And, uh, yeah. and I'm sure that it is. And the full name is known for a lot of different reasons. Um, but I know it's one you carry with pride and that, you, uh, that you're raising your kids in that way also, which is eventually really the ultimately best thing that we do 100%. is to keep that going to the next generation. So I want to thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank you for being involved with Israel Fund and uh, helping, you know, get the word out and doing what we can to, uh, to keep this place, place going and to make the world a better place. Amen. Because it's in our hearts and it's in our souls. And it's in our thank ability. You. And it's in our ability. Exactly. Thank you. Josh Haston here, host of Israel Uncensored on the Land of Israel radio network at thelandofisrael.com. Make sure you check out my show every Monday, bringing you the news unfiltered and uncensored information that you are not getting anywhere else, especially not in the mainstream media. Israel Uncensored with Josh Haston on the Land of Israel network at thelandofisrael.com.